And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Football Show, a podcast from The Athletic about Big Ten football. This is Scott Dockerman, and I mostly cover Iowa. Today I'm joined by Matt Fortuna, one of our terrific national reporters at The Athletic. We're going to spend most of today's episode talking about the proposed college football playoff expansion, how it impacts the Big Ten both in the regular season and for playoff positioning, and then we'll also dig into Matt's State of the Program series stories on uh, Northwestern and Illinois. As always, we wanted to thank you, our legends and listeners, for spending some time with us and adding us to your podcasting rotation. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Five stars, just like Ari Wasserman's favorite prospects. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you on here today. How are you today? I'm doing great, especially at that, after that introduction, which played all the hits. Uh, legends, five stars, you name it. But I'm happy to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have uh, someone who's who actually knows what legends and listeners or legends and leaders is about. Uh, I was thinking about that today. Does anyone Ten really years. know what it's about, Scott? Do we? <laughs> you know, it was a great concept, the but the reality and the naming was what what killed it. I think uh, you know a, a league that had 120 years at that point of of football deciding let's split everything up by competitive equality. Um, it really worked. But the names just made everybody laugh and roll their eyes and, you know, leaders, ooh, how highbrow are we here at the Big Ten? And then uh, nobody, you know, nobody could figure out who was in those divisions. And then finally it kind of died a natural death of natural causes in uh, 2014. But uh, no, it's natural uh, causes, a.k.a. expanding to Maryland and Rutgers, the real breadwinners in this this whole Big Ten realignment. Yeah, exactly. And I remember like. Right off the bat, there was a discussion to keep legends and leaders, uh, put uh, Maryland and Rutgers in the leaders division with Penn State and shipped Illinois to the legends division. And I thought, yeah, you you got to you got to put a, a nail in this coffin here. You know, <laughs> this thing's over with. I mean, it's like realignment or, or, or um, will they do it in European soccer relegation? Like relegation. they can change it every year. That the coaches would love that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the way I remembered it at the beginning was. It was the M and M's plus Iowa. You know the M schools, yes. the N schools, and Iowa. And then uh, after that, it uh, I think they went the right path. Yes. Uh, there was some discussion, and maybe there was a point there where Michigan State should have been in the West, Purdue should have been in the East. But I also know Ohio State had issues at that point because there was, uh, you know, if we remember that that timing. Penn State was still coming off the Sandusky mm-hmm. issues and didn't still couldn't wasn't qualify able to qualify for a bowl game, uh, and they thought, okay, my our division consists of Michigan. That's great, play them every other year. But then if it's Purdue, Indiana, Maryland, Rutgers, and uh, and a depleted Penn State team, I mean, what are you going to get for crowds? And 
uh, Michigan State made sense. But hey, the Upper Peninsula goes so far west, it would have made a per- it would made perfect sense, uh, uh, you know, to have Michigan State in the west. But uh, I digress because you know, looking back through this, all this nostalgia. Uh, but it's uh, <laughs> a great segue to playoff talk. I think divisions. Absolutely, it is. So uh, last week you were at uh, the, the the expansion meetings in Chicago or thereabouts. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you saw where the playoff uh, management committee agreed to boost the, the 12 team proposal to the CFP board of managers, which just happened to, to meet today. What did you glean from that? Was it more of a formality and where do things kind of stand with the CFP at this point? I would say first and foremost, it probably was just more of a formality. It was basically agreeing to move forward with the next step of a, multi-step process as we both know college sports things move very slow there are a lot of committees there are a lot of subcommittees uh it it takes a while i mean it took the sport what 145 years to figure out how to put four teams in a playoff field so (laughs) that was the real enlightening part i was on vacation when when the 12 team news broke and i thought wow like Mm -hmm. I, i did not see this coming just because they went from one to two to four to 12 almost overnight like that's great i met the more i dive into it the more i'm in love with this new format but um, I think last week's meetings were were mostly a formality, just just talking to people afterward. Um, you know, they had the general public outside of the four people um, who, who put this thing together: Craig Thompson of the Mountain West, Jack Swarbrick of Notre Dame, Greg Sinke of the SEC, and Bob Bowlesby of the Big Twelve. Outside of the working group that devised this proposal, um, the other seven people in that room, and pretty much the rest of college sports only really had a week to digest the 12-team format. So um, last week was a lot about bringing up issues that they have heard from their constituencies, whether it's coaches, um, athletic directors, uh, student-athletes, TV partners, which is probably going to have the biggest voice in all of this when it's all said and done. So there are a lot of, of layers to to undertake and to get aligned uh, on one side here. And I think that's the part that's going to – probably drag this thing out. I mean, you know, we're journalists. We know how this works. If they put something in a press release, it's happening. Um, right. <laughs> how we get from here to there is the, the not so fun part. And that's, I think, what Chicago was about last week, what Dallas is about today, and will be the fascinating part moving forward. I think, especially from the media standpoint, because there's going to be a lot of money to be made here. And um, how that all shakes out, especially with a 12-team format, will be interesting. I think it's interesting from a number of perspectives, as we know, Um, you know, because, you know, for years, for generations, we heard about the lack of a playoff. It happened. Then all of a sudden it's kind of uh, playoff fatigue happened almost instantaneously. We had a great first year, the most exciting postseason I could ever remember in college football when you had Alabama and Ohio State and Oregon with uh, with Marcus Mariota and Jameis Winston at Florida State and they get to the championship and Ohio State had a killer uh, upset and then you had the, the the two teams left out from the Big 12 I mean that was like the most impactful playoff year you could ever have and, and if it was like that every year we probably wouldn't be sitting here but then four teams just decided let's just dominate it and none of their rivals could ever rise up and beat them when you have 20 out of the 28 slots that are taken up by four teams over seven years uh that that pretty much suggests say we better do something with the sport because alabama can't keep playing clemson and keeping people in the midwest interested in this they'll they'll just switch to college basketball or the nfl or hockey or whatever so uh you know the 12 team proposal is is so odd for this sport as you mentioned because it's such a glacial pace 
that you know the natural was should it be six teams or right. eight teams? Should it be just conference champions and then a couple out larges? To go from four to twelve makes you go, whoa, okay, they're thinking differently now. And uh, the more I, and I'm like you, the more I look at the proposal and saw what's what the advantages are, who can get in, and how how the whole thing can get played out. I'm like, wow, there are there are a couple of points you can make arguments about, but by and large, this is a fantastic way to do it. And uh, I wish they could do it this year, frankly, but uh, <laughs> 2023 can't come soon, soon enough for this. So um, what was the overall reaction you've gauged? You know, you, you're plugged in not only at the Big Ten level, but Notre Dame and across the country. Uh, have you seen many drawbacks at many places to this uh, proposal? No, Scott, as you were you're just talking about it right now, I'm just thinking to myself, I have not heard like... <laughs> I hate to say this, like I haven't heard any negativity about this, right? I mean, there, there's some fine print that you need to work out and understandably so. But for me, this was, when you look at the working group, when you look at the four different constituencies those men represent, and you look at the way college football has basically operated forever, mm-hmm. this to me, and I don't want to make these guys out to be selfish in the past, but this is the first time I think the entire sport got together and thought about the greater good and not just what's going to fatten mm-hmm their team or their conference's pockets. I mean, everyone's going to get rich off this, I think, but the, the SEC could have said, we're fine where we are. We're dominating. We have no reason to change. And look, they're probably going to dominate in this um, next yeah. phase and whatever the phase is 50 years from now and so forth. But um, everyone kind of looked out for everyone here. And that was a pleasant surprise from an outside perspective. It was cool to see. Um, I think seeing it go from four to 12, they're probably thinking, well, if we're, we're expanding after just seven years of a four teamer, we're probably going to have to do that again. Eventually let's just skip that, rip the bandaid off, skip that six or 18 step, go to 12 and, and see how it plays out from there. There are always going to be unintended consequences, but to me, um, I, I have a hard time seeing two group of fives make it. I know when you retroactively look at last year's rankings, coastal Carolina would, would have been in as well. And I, I don't know. I, the question for me is, what will the committee look like? What will the committee's priorities be with a 12-team playoff? Because we were conditioned for so long to think, if you have no losses or one loss, you're in. And when the college football playoff selection committee launched, it losses, I mean, losses mattered, but who you beat mattered, mm-hmm. right? And the group of five, whether it was subconsciously or not, was a non-factor. And are they still going to be a non-factor to the point where, yeah, they're going to get their automatic bid as one of the six highest-ranked conference champions, but Coastal Carolina, like, they're not going to finish. They're, when those guys are in the room, like, are they going to say, are Coastal Carolina is going to finish 12? Like, I, I can't help but think. I look back at 2018, Ohio State finished six behind Georgia at five, and that's when Jim Delaney really lost right. it. And our, all of our understandable questions, and we still don't know the answer to this, is do they just evaluate those four and everything else is almost in its own section? Yeah. Um, and so now we'll be, do they just evaluate these 12 and everything else is, you know, the breadcrumbs at the end of the table? Um, that's the question for me. Will there be um, actual guidelines, actual numbers and data that they're supposed to study and not just whatever it is they create when they're in that room together? I mean, college basketball has its faults, but there's a pretty standard uh, operation of how to get into the tournament, what you need to do to get into the tournament, whether you like it or not. Like almost every team that gets left out, you can point to a number of different numbers, stats, you name it, schedules, and justify why they got left out. Um, with college football, it's whatever the 12 people in that room say it is. And so that, for me, is going to be the interesting part. But but it, big picture, you take a step back. Every single team in the country wakes up on the first day of training camp in this proposal with at least the possibility 
of knowing, hey, if I do everything in my power, I can win a national championship. And that is not the case for the 14 playoff, no matter what they tell us otherwise. And I think that changes now. Yeah, most definitely. And I think the fascinating parts to me are the the things that got skipped over, as you said, in the past. I remember, I want to say it was the first year where uh, going into the final week of polling, Michigan State was seven and Mississippi State was eight. And if Michigan State stayed there, they'd go to the Orange Bowl, which meant the Big Ten would forfeit its Citrus Bowl spot and on down the line. And it and in the last poll, they flipped. They didn't play, but it flipped. And it, what it did was it allowed Michigan State to go to the Cotton Bowl and Mississippi State to go to the Orange Bowl. And the Big Ten kept its Citrus Bowl slot, which is, you know, of course, the most lucrative of the non-playoff, non-New Year's Six Bowls. And it really, wow, that, that little jump mattered. Uh, they can't do that anymore. And as you mentioned, Coastal Carolina, well, it's it's okay and well and good for them to be 12th when I think North Carolina was 15th and had that Orange Bowl slot protected. And uh, But if Gary Bart is in the room next time and uh, it comes down between Indiana and, and Coastal Carolina for that last spot or, or Northwestern or Iowa even, and, you know, all of them were in the top 16 last year, uh, then that gets a little bit different. Um, that's not just a you know, throw it back. And, and I remember 15 years ago when Boise State was doing well and TCU and teams like that. I don't know if they'll, they'll get two in there anymore, but back then it seemed like there was more of an opportunity for the, the G5 or non-BCS teams to get there. I don't know that I see that anymore because, you know, frankly, TCU moved up. But, um, you know, and, and I could also see some scenario where, you know, in the future you see a Mountain West uh, American agreement sharing situation to where the best teams are playing the best teams that that would be great if they had a crossover series because it might help boost you know one or two of those teams but um but as you mentioned and i really like this point that the selfishness of the past is kind of evaporated i mean some of the things that are lost here is one the protected bowls among the new year's six for these teams um no more will there be a uh, ACC champion going to the Orange Bowl along with uh, a runner-up from the S- the highest-ranked runner-up between the AC- or SEC, Big Ten, or Notre Dame. The the Sugar Bowl, which immediately was christened the the Champions Bowl, <laughs> you know, which was it, none of you know the Big Twelve and the SEC, and it's not like the SEC missed the playoffs, so I don't know why that is the case. Or and this is where we'll delve into a little bit more the Rose Bowl. That's always been the Rose the roadblock but i kind of think last year when they when the rose bowl got moved to to arlington that it kind of stripped away that protective armor kind of like when rocky hit drago and rocky four and bloodied his face that it was like you know it's not a machine it's a man you know it's like it's not a super bowl it's a bowl (laughs) and i don't know that it can actually stand alone anymore and hold this up i think that as much as I love that game and always have, and going there is a magical experience, it's no longer the ultimate. It's no longer, it can't be the roadblock, even though it has a special status. What do you think? It's interesting. Um, it's funny enough, despite graduating from a Big Ten institution and living in Big Ten country, I've never been to the Rose Bowl, even though, like, I- I'm with you. Like, I, it's just always been kind of the North Star for me. I, I, yeah. Like, that's your New Year's Day. You sit down at that time. You watch it, that sunset. All that mm-hmm. cheesy stuff, I love. Um, last year was interesting. I mean, 
It was a once-in-a-century pandemic, right? Hopefully. So I, I don't know if if there's too much to be read into that. I mean, I did think it was... In some ways, it spoke to the Rose Bowl's arrogance that it took Brian Kelly basically threatening not to play, which we all know was a bluff, but the head coach at Notre Dame spending the entire ACC championship game pregame press conference ripping the Rose Bowl mm-hmm. like to get them to move it because, like, you know, my, my math here may be wrong, but, like, I don't think there were any hospital beds available in L.A. at that time. Like, there were not going to be fans. There weren't going to be anything. It made so little sense for anyone to fly in there to play a football game in an empty stadium and fly right back afterwards, especially when you're not, you know, again, it's a pandemic. You're not getting the bowl game experience. You're not doing the Lowry's Beef Bowl. You're not going to Disneyland. You're not doing any of that fun stuff. So, you know, does last year change things? I don't know. I mean, it was different for sure. Like when you look back at this past year, and I know everything was weird about this past year. It's like, oh, yeah, there wasn't a Rose Bowl. That's Mm. interesting. Like what – do they get that playoff game back? I mean, they're not going to, I don't think. We would have heard that by now. But it's interesting to see that cycle go through without them. Um, Interestingly enough, one of the only two guys who spoke on the record – spoke to us on on the way out uh, of of those meetings in Chicago last week was – incoming Pac-12 commissioner as of July 1st, George Klapkov. And one of the first questions asked him was about the Rose Bowl and the relationship with the Pac-12. And he gave, you know, the the typical, you know, we respect your time slot. We respect our relationship there. We want to, you know, keep that relationship going forward. But it's going to be interesting to see how that moves forward, especially, and you know this, I'm not sure if everyone else knows this, their special consultant is a man named Jim Delaney, who right. is still very influential behind the scenes in the way the tectonic plates move throughout college athletics. So, um, that will be an interesting sickling point, And frankly, it might take up most of their discussions when they're finally getting to the fine print of how we're going to schedule these things out in the years forward. But, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there should be a happy medium, right? Like everyone loves and respects it. Mm-hmm. I think we could do without someone from the Rose Bowl telling Yahoo Sports last year. Well, it's going to be comforting to the America psyche to see that sunset at four o'clock on New Year's Day with everything we've been through. Like, all right, right. get over yourself. You know, like it, it's a game. <laughs> right. Well, you know, there, there to me, there have always been two locations, two events that kind of the the ambiance kind of supersedes the event in some ways. And the Rose Bowl's one, watching the the sunset over the San Gabriel Mountains is just incredible. And, and I was glad I could see it once, even though the game ended on the first play practically. But <laughs> with Christian McCaffrey, uh, it's a good play. Yeah, it was. And, a great, and you got the me- the meme of all memes. So. Yes, right. And I mean, uh, three players slipped at I- on Iowa, and boom. <laughs> 75 yards later, touchdown, game over. Uh, the others, the watching the azaleas and you know the, the Masters in in, oh, yeah. in early April. I think those two, where the uh, the the setting kind of meets the the event. But I think the happy medium here is, and because uh, I don't think Jim Delaney wants to be on the losing side of history, even though his. Uh, uh, commissionership's over with, and hey, you and know then, the, the the sport fell apart right after he left. No, oh, I know. All, all probably because he wasn't there, as he'll tell you. But yeah, he's fine. <laughs> yeah, he he probably would tell us that. I, I do think he would have done things differently with the Big Ten, but I digress. I I do think that uh, one thing they can do is make a special clause where they do still maintain that in the quarterfinals that traditional time slot, if possible, and if they can ensure that they can land either a big 10 or pac 12 team in that game every year. I think that's the one way to make it work because otherwise it's, it's just not the same. And I don't think, and I don't think the general public, the critical mass 
isn't so wed to the Rose Bowl as it once was that I do think it needs to concede that point. Now, if I'm the Rose Bowl, hey, apply for the national championship, uh, you know, bid for it, and and maybe try to get it several years, and you should because it is a an incredible location for a game. But that said, I think if you can, you know, concede the fact that let's just be a quarterfinal every year, so you still have your tournament roses parade, still try to get the get the game time where you still get the sunset, um, and try to get either a Big Ten or a Pac-12 team. I think that's probably the best they can do because otherwise they're going to get smashed uh, to a million pieces if they try to hold this up uh, because they really have nothing they can stand for, you know, publicly on this. Well, the other part is you just mentioned that I thought of it. Um, I wonder as far as, you know, potentially bidding for a national title game, they've got maybe by all accounts, the best stadium in the country now in their backyard as well, SoFi Stadium, which is going to, has a Super Bowl this year. I think already is scheduled for a a national title game in years future. Like, I don't know if you're going to win that battle, you know? And I I think when you talk about the Rose Bowl, you talk about the atmosphere, the time, the environment. That to me is more important than, you know, trying to flex and get the biggest game on the block once every five years for this at, at the risk of sacrificing what has made you guys so special for 105 years or so. So that's a good point. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. You know, and, and there are other things that the Rose Bowl can do to, to maintain. I mean, it, first of all, UCLA still plays there. Um, they don't fill it up, but they still do. Um, you know, you could try to get a Pac-12 title game. Uh, you can do other things, but I, I just don't think that now is the time. Because the only thing it has is that view. <laughs> Everything else, it, it's L.A., basically. And, and, and even then, Pasadena is much more difficult to get to than SoFi Stadium. So uh, it's got some disadvantages. But, you know, along those lines, I wrote about some of the other bowls, the kind of the under – the, the second tier type bowls this last week. And one thing I found fascinating is in the current structure where you have basically two bowls that matter and four that are prime 
consolation prizes. Then you have that next tier underneath of the Citrus, the Outback, the Alamo. Uh, I would argue that today, if you're team 11 or 12 and you go to the Peach Bowl, it's if you're Florida or if you're Penn State and you go to the Peach Bowl in the New Year's Six, that's not a whole lot different than going to the Citrus Bowl. Um, you're going to play a similar caliber opponent. Um, yes, one's called a New Year's Six Bowl. One means more money for your conference. But really, it, they're both consolation prices. They're not championship level. The difference now is incredible. If you're Team 12, you're playing in a playoff for the chance for a national title versus if you're Team 13 and you're going to one of those bowl games, I mean, you could have just lost your conference championship game. You could have been that team that's just on the border. And the motivation could be completely different. Um, it, to me, that's where uh, there needs to be a little bit of, you know, th- there, there's some concern there for me. I, if I'm an Alamo Bowl, if I'm an Outback or a Citrus Bowl, that, wow, we could, you could get that, uh, you know, look at Northwestern last year. Now, I think Northwestern was a great story and did some incredible things. But to play a hard-fought Big Ten championship game where they really probably outplayed what everybody expected and then to be, oops, you're left out instead of going to the playoff, that letdown could say, you know, your fa- you know a third of your fans would travel, maybe even less. And the players, uh, we're going to opt out. And I, I think that could be a, a problem for those bowl games. I don't know if you've given much thought or any thought to that, but I do think that that's something that, the bowl system as it touts itself and congratulates itself for getting the bowls back into this playoff field has to be uh, cognizant of going forward because you could see a, a 20,000 attended game in, in Orlando or Tampa rather than, you know, 50, 60,000 like we do now. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, the, the attendance part's interesting because the worst of the worst bowls are still, for the most part, drawing twice as much TV viewers as yep. Duke North Carolina basketball is as crazy as that sounds. Yep. And I know our basketball friends don't want to hear it, but that's the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat Fitzgerald brought up an interesting point along the lines of what you were talking about last week with our friend Ralph Russo of the Associated Press. He said, now help me understand this without automatic bids. You know, forget last year, look at 2018 when Northwestern, I think had four, five, lo- four losses entering the big 10 title game against a one loss Ohio state team that pretty much had no chance of getting in, even if they won as ended up being the case. So right. if we upset Ohio State that year, we're not getting it in because we got four losses and they might not get in either as a maybe the worst two-loss Power 5 team there that doesn't even have a conference title. Like, did we just screw our conference? Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, it's a fair point. I don't know if there are many coaches outside, maybe the one you cover, mm-hmm. along with Pat Fitzgerald, who, who would think in that yeah. context beyond just playoff, 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 championship, championship, championship. Um I think it's a good, healthy discussion to have. I'd much rather have that one with Pat Fitzgerald and Kirk Ferentz than I would Larry Scott tweeting a statement saying, we need automatic bids. Like, you're a Power 5 conference. Like, yeah, figure it out. Right. And I, I don't even look at last year. Last year, you didn't get in because yeah. you decided to put an Oregon team with two weeks rest against a USC team that was undefeated with six days to prepare. Right. That's why your team would have been left out. Um, but I, it's, again, we, we talk about the fine print with this. That's one of the discussions I think that needs to be had and will be interesting. The other part, we had a whole discussion about bowl games in Los Angeles. We did not mention the Jimmy Kimmel Los Angeles Bowl. Oh, Scott. yes. What were we thinking? Oh. Uh, the, the sanctity and the pageantry that comes with SoFi <laughs> Stadium this time of the year. Um, I heard that and like everyone else, I thought it was a joke and then I saw it wasn't. And 
it, it validated my earlier claims when I first started working at The Athletic, which was The Athletic should sponsor a bowl game because it's great business. And having remotely covered the Elk Grove Village Makers Wanted Bahamas Bowl <laughs> from the official watch party in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, mm-hmm. um, it's good for business. I mean, it sounds crazy and we all laugh at it, but there's a lot of money to be made in these things. And good for Jimmy Kimmel for... Um, doing the charitable endeavor he's doing and, and also in some ways kind of making a mockery out of all of it because I think more and more people from other non-sports sectors will see this and maybe try to get involved as well. And I think the more that do that, um, the looser the grip, I think, comes on how stuffy some of this this legislative stuff has become. And maybe we do get to the point where um, quarterfinals can be on campus as well and not just be as part of the bowl games. Because that, that's the interesting part for me as well and the part that I was – as a fan, hoping that might get mm-hmm. might get loosened up a little bit last week with all those discussions was, hey, you know what? Why are we outsourcing our best product to a third party? Um, like our our student athletes now that they have you know are going to have nil rights, are they going to demand an appearance fee to appear in a third party game? You know, and the other interesting part I, I should mention that that, that that came out of last week, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that I didn't really think of is even the home games of these playoffs are essentially going to be like. Third part, like it, it's going to be much like an NCAA tournament game that happens to be in Columbus, Ohio. Like, uh, <laughs> this is going to be run by the playoff. Now, the local economy is obviously going to benefit tremendously. The environment's going to be off the charts. I mean, it's going to be awesome. But uh, that that's uh, the fine print I think that gets lost in this as well, at least from a, a money standpoint. Yeah, and uh, there, there's going to be some so many little fascinating factors. I mean, right now, 5 through 12, first round playoff at, at, at home sites. I can't imagine what a, um, you know, Florida going to Wisconsin or Iowa City or Columbus, Ohio, or, you know, Ann Arbor. Well, probably not Ann Arbor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, some of those, East Lansing, some of those teams uh, in mid-December, it's going to be off the charts. and And, of course, the local fans will just, revel in that you know environment but uh, you know I mean as far as future bracket creep goes you know some of the things I could see in the future is you know the, the natural shift is from 12 to 16 because those teams that got buys are going to be interested in hosting a playoff game and say hey why is it that you know if I'm Alabama and maybe once <laughs> you get to host a playoff <laughs> game in a six-year period because you're getting buys every year your fans are going, man, we kind of like to host a playoff yeah. game against number 15 or 16. Uh, so I imagine 16 team is probably the way it ends up in 10 years, eight years, something like that. Um, you know, and then two, the quarterfinals. I think we're kind of at the the edge is kind of wrapping up this part of the discussion of the bowls being kind of at, having a, a major seat at the table. I could see that, okay, well, you know what, quarterfinals, it makes much more logistical sense. To send again, you know, team seven to two, you know, so where maybe it's uh, Wisconsin going to Alabama as opposed to Wisconsin and Alabama playing in uh, the Cotton Bowl or, or wherever. So I could see that becoming part of it because as we see the kind of the sunset of that, the boomer group, the age, you know, that really, you know, holds itself, weds itself to the bowls and probably more in the Gen X period where it's, eh, whatever. <laughs> I'm a part of it, so I feel that way, uh, except for the Rose Bowl. You know, so I, I could see that, and then where it's it only goes neutral for the semifinals and finals. It's probably it would save everybody more money to do that. It would certainly be much more of a, you know, television-wise, I, I think people would absolutely eat that up 
and, yes. and and you look about fans. I mean, you know, in all of the scheduling, uh, especially with the Big Ten uh, going to nine games, there hasn't been a lot of real great crossovers. There, there's one or two every year, but can you imagine um, Wisconsin going to Death Valley at LSU. Which one? Yeah, both. <laughs> Let's take both. You know, Clemson or whatever, or or going to uh, Texas. Texas is playing host to to Bama in the middle of December. I mean, that's just. Wow, here we go. Not that a bowl game is not important, but neutral site doesn't equal home site. So uh, I think that's kind of the natural move after this. What's kind of your thoughts? Have you given any thought to that? Yeah, I mean, that's what I was hoping for. And I guess there's still time because this isn't official official yet. I I thought Bob Bowlesby, when they announced this two weeks ago on the conference call, said, yo, I'm not sure how many people want to play. I'm paraphrasing. He said, you know, how... I'm not sure how many people want to play in East Lansing, Michigan on January 7th. I'm thinking, yeah, that's the point. Like, yeah. home field advantage. Like, right. Michigan State wants to play a home game against preferably a team from another part of the country. And, I mean, Lambeau Field is much better in the playoffs than it is in the regular season. It is. <laughs> I've been there. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think that would be awesome. Um, the other part of it, I mean, you mentioned the boomer generation, which is uh, one way to put it. The other way I put it. The athletic directors and uh, commissioners and, and the, the people who have deep, deep ties with the bowl games and those relationships, uh, I just think the salaries have gotten so out of control that like you don't need it. Mm-hmm. Like Athletic directors, every Power 5 athletic director, if they're not making a million dollars a year, is making damn near close to it. Like They can vacation and golf on their own dime if yeah. they really want to. Like To have the Fiesta Bowl or whomever give you and your family a, a weekend getaway. That's great. But like, is that really worth sacrificing a home game, a home playoff game? I, you know, it's an individual decision for each, but I just think the, the, the power structure of this sport is just night and day from what it was when it grew. And I, I just think at some point where, you know, it was interesting looking at the makeup of the, the working group where you have Greg Sankey and Bob Bowlesby, and it didn't really dawn on me until after the fact Oh yeah, like of course those two are on it. They're the only two commissioners who have been in their chairs for like more than three years. Like we have three new Power Five commissioners since January first, twenty twenty. That's insane. Like that's just an insane amount of turnover. Right? We don't we won't realize it until these guys are done after twenty years or whatever. We just think, oh wow, like we're at the start of a new era right now with Jim Phillips in the ACC, Kevin Warren in the Big Ten, George Klavkov at the Pac twelve. Um, it's different. Like those are the five most important, powerful people in college sports, right? Give or take. And three of them are brand new and are going to have their own spin on things. And like Greg Sankey, Bob Bowlesby are the, the two heavyweights, mm-hmm. two most important and deservedly so. But they're also not going to be around forever. And once you have five completely new guys there, and it's not like those guys have been there for 20 years either. Greg Sankey got there, I think, right. in 2014. And Bowlesby was right around that time as well. Um, I just think the overall philosophy is going to change. And we're already seeing that with the expansion of the 12-team playoff. And I think... I hate to say that the, the separation or breakaway from the bowl games is the next step, but loosening the reins a little bit on that relationship and allowing more flexibility and more give and take and back and forth, I think is the ultimate next step to get these games on campus. Yeah, it's no longer Mike Slive and Jim Delaney dividing the world in half and <laughs> you conquer this, you we conquer that. But, you know, and Bullsby has interesting experience because he was, you know, 15 years, he was the AD at Iowa. He was an AD at Stanford for what, about eight or six, six or seven or eight or something like that. And then he's been in the Big 12 and and really has uh, saved the Big 12. I mean, it was, uh, it was a flattering conference at that point, led by one team and one team only. <laughs> and then here he was able to kind of 
you know, turn it into a cohesive unit. I think he's done a remarkable job. He, he never he never solved the horns down fracas. No. And he's punted on it every single way, which always irked me a little bit, but it's made for fun discussion for me and you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did remember when he fined Jamie Pollard from Iowa State, though, for his, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, complaining that the Big 12 was against him on the football field at Oklahoma State. Ja- Jamie Pollard complaining. Wow. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, it only happens uh, every couple of months or so. But, uh, you know, let, let's spin this a little bit into the Big Ten. Uh, we've both been around it for a long time. And uh, the Big Ten, uh, you know, first kind of starting back, when the expansion took place with Nebraska and then then ultimately with Maryland and Rutgers, uh, there was some concerns about a lot of these teams not playing each other very often anymore. I mean, uh, you know, a league where it had been together for 120 years, most of the teams, you know, even Michigan State was the newest in their mid-50s in joining the league, uh, and Penn State, of course, in 93. Uh, but they played each other so often that, hey, Illinois and uh, Ohio State play for a turtle and have for 100 years, and yet they're not going to play very much anymore. Uh, you know, there were some concerns about that, so they decided let's let's go to nine games uh, every, you know, so we can play each other more, not less. Delaney did it also with an eye on the college football playoff that the criteria would help boost the Big Ten. And not only those uh, primary games, you know, playoff spots, but, but in some of the, uh, to get into the new Year's six bowls, which were more lucrative for the league as a whole to not play FCS competition anymore. That changed almost immediately. Um, and, uh, and then also to play one non-conference power five team. So they put themselves in a position where the criteria mattered. And we, we've discovered really in the last four to five years, criteria didn't matter. It was all about eye test. And, uh, now that the, the, 12 team playoff is going to that's going to define a team season it's no longer i got we got to the peach bowl it's that we got to the playoff that that's all that's really all that matters in that dividing line it appears to me that the big 10 has to make that decision is is playing nine games more important than getting a third team in the playoff and a majority of coaches and ad's in today's era will say no let's go let's go to eight games uh, is divisional play, um, you know, set in stone, or should they go to a, you know, full fourteen-team league? Everybody pick three rivals and then cycle out the other ten ta- teams, you know, two years on, two years off, and then then have kind of a matchup weekend, if you will, a Champions Week like that, uh, you know, situation they wanted to do last year. I think that leaves the Big Ten with a lot of room for discussion and having new people in the room. You know, it could either be good, a good thing or a bad thing, uh, depending on what happens, I guess. But um, what is the, how does the Big Ten best position itself to get more teams in the playoff rather than less uh, starting in two, 2023? Your story with Kirk Ferentz last week really opened my eyes, just hearing him talk about, like, why, if our goal is to make the playoff and win it all why are we scheduling nine conference games and not eight like the SEC or ACC? And I hadn't thought of it in such explicit terms, but it does make sense. And if that's going to be the end-all be-all, I think you need to take a step back and and look at what's best for business. Um, I do think this isn't Big Ten specific so much as everyone, and having covered a lot of ACC, it's definitely a problem there. I, I do think in this era, conferences should have the right to determine their champion however they see fit. And for the most part, they have. And we saw the Big 12 screw that up in year one, and it cost them one or two playoff bids, and they immediately course-corrected. But I just think 
you look at the Big Ten, you look at the ACC, you look at the SEC. One, I'd like to see just the two best teams in. I mean, look at the ACC last year where Notre Dame joined and there was no divisions. I mean, you had a conference title game that, to me, it was exciting. Some people say it was meaningless because if Notre Dame won, or Notre Dame lost and still got in, and Clemson got in, and if Notre Dame won, Clemson probably wasn't going to get in because it would have been their second loss. But to me, that was fun. That was kind of like a, a quarter, what a quarterfinal game should be like yeah. in a four-team or eight-team playoff format. Uh, but but for me, it's just, I mean, Notre Dame's Notre Dame is a partial member of the ACC has played some of these teams three times or so in the last five years, and some of these full-time ACC members are going seven years between games. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you even say you're in the same conference then? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, other than showing up to the meetings in the offseason and being in the same room with these guys, what else do you guys have in common? Like, it's so inequitable as far as schedules, as far as crossover opponents, as far as protecting rivalries and so forth. I, I just think, scrap divisions, they've... they've They've put a stranglehold on, on the way some of these conferences have been doing business and what's best for business for too long. And you just need your, I mean, th- that Northwestern example I brought up earlier of 2018, credits to them for winning the Big Ten West, uh, especially in a year where no one thought they would do it. But uh, bad example, I probably wouldn't want to see Ohio State, Michigan two weeks in a row after Ohio State just beat them by 30 something points. But Penn State or, or someone else, like, uh, I think you need to look at, um, What's going to put your conference in the best position to succeed? Um, as far as bids and, and what this means and so forth, like I, I don't know if this changes anything. I think it probably doesn't change anything as far as who's going to win it every year. In fact, I think in some ways it gives a mulligan to a two-loss Alabama or Clemson team should they stumble in the regular season. That Right now, Clemson could sleepwalk through the regular season and right. know that they're probably in because the ACC is so bad. But you know, I was talking to an athletic director of a, I'd call them a mid-tier power five team and he said if if i can hang a banner in my practice facility that we made the playoff in 2023 or whenever that's five years worth of recruiting mm-hmm. and for me i look at like indiana last year right. just like you said at basketball school when are they going to get it right they haven't been to the final four in this long etc cetera, etc cetera. indiana football makes the college football playoff i don't care how many teams are in it that is just a game changer for that university and uh, you know in some ways there are better examples of that because indiana is a known commodity because of the the lineage of their basketball program. I mean, look at, uh, I don't know, an Iowa State, which actually is in position most yeah. years now under Matt Campbell, but, um, you know, a Washington State, you know, the, the lower tier Power Five programs, obviously the Group of Five, which now have a much bigger seat at the table. I, I just think, I hate to make the comparison to March Madness because it's a completely different sport with a completely different system of determining as champion, but uh, there's still that celebratory nature of we got in. I mean, Loyola Chicago has forever changed. They didn't win a national championship. They haven't since 1950 or 1963. But the Final Four, I don't. I, I can't even begin to think of how many millions that has benefited them, even though they were two games short of winning a national championship. I mean, Porter Moser was making, I think, less than $700,000 in 2018, mm-hmm. and they offered him more than $2 million to keep him here. And he, he like That money did not just come out of thin air. Like, right. <laughs> three years later, with two Sweet 16 runs, your university is swinging in different ballpark right now. And I just think that's going to be the case for so many of these programs um, that otherwise wouldn't have a chance of being a top four team. Without a doubt. And 
uh, you, you mentioned Northwestern. I'll mention uh, how the Big Ten scheduling philosophy kind of doomed its champion twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ohio State in 2017 and 18. 2017, it lost, I think it was that year, it lost to Oklahoma. In, Oklahoma, yeah. In the beginning, but then it goes to Iowa City. And uh, there are times when playing at Kinnick Stadium is not a good place to play if you're a, a highly ranked team. And that was one of them where you, you know, they it's kind of like they lock the fence. It's like a steel cage match. And if you can't match their intensity and their physicality, you will get beaten. And that's what happened that day. Um, maybe they don't play that game if there's only eight games instead of nine. Likewise, the next year when they went to Purdue, that's a West Division rival, uh, road game. Um, they played a really good team and uh, at that night, anyway, not across the board, and uh, and got beaten soundly, and that cost them. Maybe they don't play that game in a nine game schedule. Now, you know that it's their fault for losing those games. I'm not going to say, oh, you know, war was them, but at the same time, if you're only playing eight, there is a huge difference between playing in conference and out of conference. The intensity, uh, you know, in the Big Ten, the rivalry component is apparent. I mean, those those three schools have been in the same league for a hundred years, so there's a history there. Um, you know, in Iowa and Ohio State are barely in the same conference. They haven't that. They've played at Kinnick once since 2010. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, so I do think that that's something that the Big Ten needs to, to think about is if our most important goal is to get to the playoff and get as many teams as possible into the playoff, if that's Penn State, which is perpetually going to be number two pretty much behind Ohio State in the East, and we want to make sure that they have a better opportunity to get there, then maybe they shouldn't have to play. Go Their road shouldn't always have to go through Columbus. Or, you know, Wisconsin, um you know, saying you know, Wisconsin and Iowa in the West, or Michigan when whenever it kind of rises back up, if it does. <laughs> you know, Michigan State, same thing. You know, I, I think that's something that it needs to be discussed. But I also think the rivalry component needs to be addressed because, uh, you know, I remember when they went legends and leaders, and the thought was splitting Michigan and Ohio State would be good, and then they moved the game to early November, and and that's when the record skipped. You know, to use a old you know <laughs> situation that the record skipped, and everybody's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, that ain't happening, and and then that kind of changed the whole dynamic. So, I, I think if like an Iowa's case. You, need to play Minnesota, Wisconsin, and probably Nebraska every year. Northwestern would be right there, too. Uh, you know, other teams have other rivalries that they need to address. And then then there's the M- Maryland-Rutgers situation where, well, who are they going to play other than each other? Uh, <laughs> Penn State. <laughs> Penn State. Penn State's like, well, we really don't care. You know, we'll play them, I guess. Well, they, they'll take the wins. Yeah, they'll take <laughs> the wins. They get up for Maryland if you've seen the scores of those games yeah, the last right. couple of years, other than last year. But. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, you know, there's there's some of that component. But I, I do think that the Big Ten needs to really really needs to focus on first and foremost, most important thing. And I think most coaches, maybe outside of Fitz and Ference, as you, as you said, it's all about the, the playoff. And even then, I think those two would agree that getting in the playoff is a big freaking deal. And, and they, you know, if they can get there, if that's one fewer conference loss and one more non-conference win, and you can get there, you can promote that. You can recruit to that. You can sell it to your donors. Uh, there's so much more, you know, rather than, man, that, that Ferentz's seventh trip to the Outback Bowl, that's more important than the playoff. No, I don't think anybody would agree to that. Yeah, there, there has to be a happy medium, right, that, that incentivizes strong scheduling, which is going to be another big point of contention as far as how this is going to play out moving forward and um, keeps the conference, I don't want to say integrity, but, you know, keeps the conference 
brotherhood intact. Um, you know, Ohio State is a common example of the Big Ten. I would argue in 2018 that they had that coming. They they were they you know they should have lost to Maryland. They they should have lost to uh, Penn State that year. I mean that 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 just was a fractured team with everything that had happened with with um, Zach Smith in the offseason right. and with Urban Meyer clearly not fully himself. And you know that that team had to come in 2017 though. Yeah, I mean if they play a patsy in the non-conference to have an Oklahoma team that in my opinion was probably should have won it all that year. Um, do you get in with your only loss being on the road at Kinnick stadium to which you know, is better than anyone is an absolute death trap. I don't care what the records are. Like that's an impossible place to play at night. Um, I don't know. I, I, the one that really sticks in my craw is 2019 Oregon. They completely blow it against Auburn in the opener. And I remember thinking right then the PAC 12 is out of the playoff and people are like, what are you talking about? They're, they're the best team in that league, blah, blah, blah. And they are. But you know when the last time a team ran the table in the Pac-12 regular season? 2010, Oregon, Chip Kelly, oh, yeah. when they went to uh, the national title game and lost to Auburn. Like, say what you want about the Pac-12. Top to bottom, that's a damn tough conference. And when you're playing a round-robin schedule, or, or excuse me, close to a round-robin schedule, nine opponents, someone's going to get you. And Oregon got got at an Arizona State team that was young but talented and had the environment and had the stage and lived up to the moment. And... We saw what they did when they played Utah in the Pac-12 title game. It wasn't even close. Mm-hmm. I mean, they ran them off the field in the first half, and that was Utah's playing game to get into the playoff. And I just thought, you know, Oregon didn't lose a playoff bid because they lost at Arizona State because everyone loses in the Pac-12 at some point yeah. when you go on the road like that. They lost because they let, let Auburn off the hook in the non-conference. If they were 12-1 and with a Pac-12 title and a non-conference win over an SEC team, they're in the playoff over, I think, a 12-1 and Oklahoma team that year that wasn't all that good. Um, and you just have to figure out – how best to position your teams to get in there. And, you know, the SEC has figured it out. The ACC right now, I mean, it's working. As long as Dabo's still at Clemson, it's working. I mean, the minute that that gravy train stops moving in that direction, we'll see what happens to the rest of the conference. Although I'd find it impossible to believe that some combination of Florida State, Miami, Virginia Tech, even North Carolina won't eventually be a national player again. Um, you need to figure out how to do it. And, and, and with the Big Ten, especially with the way those divisions are set up from a competitive standpoint, I get why they did it. I, I, I don't know what the best path forward is. It, it's it's fascinating from a couple of perspectives. One is whichever division you put Ohio State in, it's the, most, it's the best division. <laughs> you could put Ohio State in with Maryland, Rutgers, uh, you know, I'm, uh, maybe I shouldn't use all those teams as, <laughs> as cannon fodder here, but, you know... <laughs> Ohio State is the straw that stirs the drink in the Big Ten. You look everywhere else, uh, you know, like the East leads the West 66-60 since they went to, to uh, divisional play. Um, everybody beats everybody on a frequent basis. I mean, Iowa's beaten Michigan five out of seven times. And and, and so it, it's uh, – they're very close competitive games. Uh, there's really no difference. I mean, Iowa and Penn State have the same number of wins over the last six years. So there's – and Wisconsin's second. So I think there's uh, – an argument to be made that if it wasn't for Ohio state, that it really wouldn't feel that skewed. But, but then again, is it fair to Penn state to always have to go through that one path and not get there and not have that opportunity to win a championship, even against an Ohio state head to head. And, and cause there have been years where they've been at worst, the second best team in the league. And I think of, you know, Saquon Barkley and, and those, I mean, that was just an incredible offense with Trace McSorley and everything. Uh, but I, you know, when it comes to the playoff in the Big Ten, you know, one thing I noticed was out of the 28 slots 
over the seven-year period, 16 have been taken up by the SEC and ACC, 11 by the, 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 the teams that play nine regular season games, the, the Big 12, the Big 10, and the Pac-12. One is, is Notre Dame, which kind of counts for one for the ACC and right. one for the independent. And last year is kind of a wacky year, as we know. I mean, that, that's hard to judge. But, but by and large, if you're an 18, if you're playing eight conference games and the, the SEC is, does this almost annually, one quality non-conference opponent and then three likely wins, although some of the lower teams tend to lose those games. But if you're playing you know, a two G5s and an FCS along with a, another Power 5, you've got a chance to at worst get to a bowl game and then um, play that Wofford game before Auburn or Alabama, <laughs> you know, and it helps. Uh, the Big Ten, nine games, conference season, a lot of times straight through, that's – you're battling. I mean, you're battling every week, and there's a history and there's a tradition. You're recruiting against these teams. They don't. They're on the same level as far as uh, you know pageantry and history. So, I think the Big Ten needs to take that step. And and if that means the non-conference schedules go well, it's either beef up your non-conference schedule and only get one or two teams in the playoff, or allow everybody to kind of tone it down and get three to the playoff. The playoffs the most important thing. Nobody will care if you played uh, Colorado State or. Uh, Washington State in the offseason, but they'll care if you get to the playoff or if you go to the Citrus Bowl. You know, when you were talking about Penn State running into Ohio State every year, it reminded me a little bit of Clemson in the earlier years of Dabo Sweeney when they were clearly the second best team in the ACC behind um, Jimbo Fisher's Florida State teams. And they would go 11-2 and a number of years where their only losses were to Florida State and then to South Carolina when Steve Spurrier had them rolling in. Dabo, among his many Daboisms, had a quote. I want to say it was in probably would have been thirteen the last year before they um, thirteen or fourteen. Um, he, he said something along the lines of, "You know, for some reason, the good Lord decided to make me the head coach at Clemson the same time Steve Spurrier's at South Carolina, the same time Jimbo Fisher's at Florida State." And there was a you know a funny woes me vibe about it, but it was also like we're damn good and we're going to be here for a while. And sure enough, he. <laughs> He outlasted and overtook both of them in no time and, and has blown them both out of the water. I, I just don't think that's like Florida State. I never saw Florida State being as bad as they've been, but Ohio State is the most recession proof program in the country. I don't care if Ryan Day goes to the NFL tomorrow. They promote someone else or hire me, hire me or you. They're going 500 every year. They had the worst thing in the world at the time happen to them. And what happened? They went 500 and got Urban Meyer out of it. Like <laughs> they're always going to be really, really good. So uh, your point about whichever division they're in, like, it's real. Like there's a roadblock there that just isn't going to fix itself. Um, I've I've talked about this with, with Pete Sampson, my co-host of the Shamrocker Notre Dame podcast. You know, he thought you know Notre Dame now in the 12 team playoff has more access. This is great. And I thought that's true, but you know, if they join the ACC tomorrow and they're put in the coastal or, or not, or they undo divisions, they're probably going at worst 12 and one every year with the loss of Clemson. And 12 and one in any yeah. power conference is going to be a top 12 team. So, you know, I think they have an easier path to the playoff and would get that buy or be eligible for that buy if they join a conference. Now, there are other, um, other parts to, to, to play into it when it comes to Notre Dame and football independence and so forth. But it, it's um, – I don't know what happens. I mean, it, it's the, – the recruiting effect of the playoff it, it was the unforeseen part of this, especially when at the time in 2012 when they announced this thing, there were six power conferences, which meant – Two were going to get left out, 
and the Big East disappeared, and there were five power conferences, which meant one conference got left out. And more often than not, that was a Pac-12, and we've seen the recruiting effect of being number five in a four-team field every year. Those Southern California kids are going to Alabama and Clemson in a way they never did before. And I think as long as you could say we've got a chance to win it all, we're going to be in that tournament every year, or at least fighting for a spot in that tournament every year, in some ways, I think it's as simple as that, at least as far as keeping in-state talent home. Right. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And that was one one point that uh, Kirk Ferentz made was the difference now versus 10 years ago. Um, you know, he said one of the things he was most fascinating to watch when Urban Meyer took over at Ohio State was they went national with their recruiting, which is the mm-hmm. way Alabama's done, which is what Clemson has done. And uh, there's a response there. And whether it's social media, whether it's just exposure, what have you, it, it matters. You know, playoff potential matters. I mean, you know, for Alabama to come up, and this was – you know, a handful of years ago, come up in, to Iowa and get Ross Pierschbacher, who was an Iowa commit, um, and then be a four-year starter for the Crimson Tide. He would have been a great player at Iowa, too. Um, that was a really difficult back and forth, but it, it, it did end up happening. Um, that says a lot. That's not something that Alabama would have done in previous decades. And, uh, you know, likewise, you know, Ohio State, you could – pretty much say let's take the 10 best players in Ohio every year and still be a really good team and then you know filter in the rest and Urban just takes the best players period and and then same with Ryan Day so um and then of course Clemson uh you know the phrase uh scrubbed from history is the the phrase Clemsoning it's never it's never valid anymore it's it's gone so I, I, it's a fascinating discussion. And then Notre Dame, which I, you and Pete will can go into detail on multiple times and probably every year, uh, you know, we don't need to do it here, but I did want to talk to you a little bit about your state of the programs, uh, stories as we kind of wrap up cause we've gone long so far, but, uh, Northwestern, um, the team that never really gets mentioned every year. It's the team that everybody goes, okay, who's going to win the West? Well, Wisconsin and, and I will be competitive. And then there's a, well, you know, Iowa's Iowa. I always hear that one. Uh, Minnesota. Northwestern's Iowa's kryptonite. That's what oh, they really need. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that's – nobody here overlooks Northwestern. They used to, but they, <laughs> they haven't for since Fitz has been there, that's for sure. Uh, Minnesota, well, they'll be good. Or Purdue, well, they've got this. Uh, Northwestern's just kind of there. And next thing you know, Northwestern goes into Kinnick, and they're down 17 to nothing, and they beat Iowa 21 to 20 or whatever. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, at the end of the year, you're like, Wow, you know they beat Nebraska by whatever points. They beat uh, kill Illinois, and and they're the, they're the champions. And then they get Wisconsin at home, and so they which they 
I think they've won every year but once in the last 20 against Wisconsin at, at uh, Evanston. But I, I think they lost a lot of people from last year, a lot of really good players that were there seemingly for a decade plus, um, including Mike Hankowitz, who's there way longer than that. Uh, what did you glean from, from the Wildcats? I know Fitz is pretty forthcoming most of the time. Uh, and what are their kind of their prospects going forward? So I went into writing the story. The listeners, I live in Chicago. I live half hour from, from Northwestern. I, pretty familiar with that program. And because of that, and because of everything Scott just said, I didn't know what to expect because they lost so much. I mean, if you look at that chart we run with all these state of the program stories of returning production, almost everything is in the red for Northwestern. Zero passing yards returning, 38% of rushing yards, 20% of receiving yards, which wasn't all that good to begin with last year. They lost a lot. And not just from last year, I think from their career. I mean, when you look at those linebackers, Patty Fisher, um, like Gallagher, it, it, these guys were players and they made plays for four years there. They all had multiple, big, all big 10 honors. And you take away that, you take away Mike Hankwitz. Um, I think there's, as with any team, there's a natural um, feeling of, all right, they're going to take a step back this year. They have so many question marks. And you probably think that even more so with Northwestern because they're a team that's always old. So the minute they're young, you're thinking they're probably not going to be all that good or, or as good as a Wisconsin and Iowa is when they're replacing, you know, graduated seniors. My one takeaway though, talking to Fitz and talking to other people around that program and background is we keep writing that. We love that. Like we love, we love those guys. We're going to miss them dearly. We think this is as talented as any roster we've had. It just might, it might take us a while. We don't know. You never know how these guys are going to respond until they get under the bright lights. It's a very young team that's going to have, a lot of new faces in key places. And yep, you don't know. I mean, this is a program that historically, recently historically, not very good in September. Um, they lose a lot of games they shouldn't lose in the non-conference, whether it's Duke, Akron, you name it. Um, they've, they've been their own worst enemy yes. coming out of the gate. And I think, you know, at least from the outside looking in, that's a cause for concern for me because you're asking now non-veteran players to, to, to grow up even quicker. So, I'm curious to see how they come out of the gate. I think they got a very favorable draw schedule-wise when you look at their crossovers from the East. It's Michigan State at home, Rutgers at home, Michigan away. You can make an argument Michigan State and Rutgers could be two of the worst, maybe talent-wise, the two worst teams in that division, give or take. They're not Ohio State. They're not Penn State. I feel comfortable saying that. We also know Northwestern is fully capable of losing to both those teams, mm-hmm. even on, on with some of their better teams. So you can't take anything for granted at Northwestern. The margin for error is always incredibly thin. And when you add that inexperience on top of that, I get why people are very lukewarm on this team. But, you know, they have won two of the last three Big Ten uh, West titles. And they're hitting 50% right now in the transfer category with quarterbacks because they had them each of the last two years. One didn't work out at all. Last year worked out perfectly. They're going to go for 66% this year with Ryan Holinsky from South Carolina who – Played a lot of football. He struggled at times, but he got thrown into the fire very early, both on and off the field. But And he was a very highly rated quarterback commit coming out of high school who Northwestern was in on and who was familiar with and who they're hoping can be their quarterback for the foreseeable future. And you ask anyone at Northwestern after 2019 when they went 3-9, and nine, what happened? You know, they fired their office coordinator, so obviously there were problems there. But they said, like, we get decent quarterback play this year, whoever that may be. And this was before Peyton Ramsey had signed on from Indiana. Like, we're going to be just fine. And a lot of us in the media are jaded and we roll our eyes and think that's coach speak. Of course, they're going to be optimistic. But 
sure enough, like right. that roster wasn't a whole lot different from what it was a year earlier. And they damn near beat Ohio State in the Big Ten title game with a, a good but not great quarterback, I think, in Peyton Ramsey. So at risk of putting too much emphasis on that position. If Ryan Holinsky's good, I think it's a damn good football team. If he's not, uh, I think they're going to have some growing up to do. Yeah, I, I've seen this program, you know, since Fitz took over in 2006. <laughs> and, um, you know, Iowa has, a, you know, a lot of bruises in its stomach from getting kicked in the stomach from all these really painful losses. And I think looking back on last year's game, uh, you know, certainly one of them because, you know, being up 17 to nothing at Kinnick. Now, if the stands were full at Kinnick and it's 17 to nothing, that might have been a little bit more difficult for Northwestern to come back than, a, than an empty stadium. That said, they do – one thing I've noticed with Fitz, kind of the, the hallmarks or the tenets that I watch every year is that – they, they're always smart, of course, because you got to be smart to get in Northwestern. Uh, they play tough. They, they, they play, you know, they play smart on the field. They don't, and then they don't, they don't press. They just keep playing their game. They just keep doing what they need to do. They're rarely the most talented team on the field, uh, but they just know how to just, just keep working. Just, you know, and the normal things that teams do where it's, it's third down, they're down 10 points they throw the ball deep and it's knocked away, intercepted. They have to punt. They don't do it that way. They work it through their system, and and it's been really interesting to watch. And then, of course, you know Hankowitz did a really good job with you know Gallagher and Fisher, who I think are eligible to be president now. You know, both of them. You know, they <laughs> they've been playing forever there. Greg Newsom was fantastic. Didn't have great statistics, but man, he was the best. He tipped the field when he was out there. And then they may have the best left tackle in uh, college football and Peter Skronsky who's only a sophomore and people are going to be like man that guy's got two more years you know because he's crazy because he replaced mm-hmm. maybe the best left tackle in college right. football remember Sean Slater who opted out right exactly and was a first round draft pick yeah I mean people were like blown away by how good he was I mean they knew that he would be good because I know that- yeah but as a freshman to do what he did it was just that, that just doesn't happen right right and uh and Brandon Joseph I, we haven't brought him up but yes he was six interceptions and he was However fantastic. Many games. Led, the, led the nation, and they played nine games last Right. And then uh, the other team you, you wrote about, uh, I, it's funny because when you start talking about a uh, two teams in the same state that are rivals, probably not super intense rivals, but rivals nonetheless, uh, there's no more difference, <laughs> different set of circumstances than Illinois and Northwestern. You know, Illinois has, has just churned through coaches over the last 30-plus years. Really, their systems have bounced back and forth. They've had talent, then they've died. And then uh, Fitz, same philosophy, same system. They work, they, they tweak some things, they're better. Um, one's private, one's public. Illinois now with uh, with Brett Bielema. Um, I think, I know people in my part of the world are uh, respect him. You know, they respect him for what he can do and, of course, his alma mater. Uh, but uh, they do think that there's a chance that this team could really, you know, improve to be in a competitive team, um, you know, in the future. Uh, what did you glean from what Brett wants to do? How do you think they'll perform this year? And, and does he have a philosophy in the, for, in the future that can carry this program to where it's competitive in the West or whatever semblance the Big Ten chooses in the future? Yeah, so when Illinois made this hire, um, I was so-so on it. I didn't dislike it, but I also thought, oh, yeah, that guy, like, he hasn't been in college in three years, didn't really have a great last act in Arkansas. Um, what, what you know, there are several up-and-coming guys with ties to the state who I thought could do a great job at Illinois, um, if given the right resources and support. 
Um, so I, I was so-so on it, and and I didn't cover him as thoroughly as, as, as you guys did back when he was at Wisconsin and when they were making the Rosewell three straight years from 2010 to 2012, but obviously familiar with his work. Um, wanted to deal with him on a personal level here has been great. I mean, there's no one he won't talk to. He's such a great communicator, and I say that from a media standpoint. I've been there. I, I, I only went there in person once since he got there, but I've talked to a lot of people in, in the months since he got there. Everyone has been blown away by him. Like he walks into a room and he commands a room. And I'm not saying Lovey Smith didn't do that, but their styles could not be any more different from a personality standpoint. And from a program building standpoint, it's funny. I'm just thinking about this now as you say it. We're talking about the last two Illinois coaches coming from the NFL ranks. One of whom was completely foreign to college in this lifetime. And the other of whom had had his ups and downs, like probably the highest of highs and lowest of lows at his last two stops in college. And then went and basically earned his PhD from Bill Belichick the last two years. And or actually two years before he was at the Giants last year. It is remarkable to see a new coach stabilize a program as quickly as he has. And I say that knowing full well that, hey, he's undefeated. It's a honeymoon phase. Nebraska runs him off the field in week zero. Everyone's going to go back to <laughs> maybe being as disinterested. Um, they have 20 of 25 seniors from last year who've returned. Mm-hmm. They have 17 returning scholarship seniors from last year's roster, which is the most among Power 5 teams. Usually when a new coach comes in, replacing a guy who got fired for not winning enough, as Lovey Smith did, it is a mass exodus, mm-hmm. especially right now in the transfer portal right. era where everyone can't wait to put their name in and see what else is out there. And it's been the complete opposite at Illinois, which has been fascinating because I just don't know if there's any equitable situation of this in recent college football history. All these, I mean, I think these guys, frankly... They probably would have left if Lovey Smith came back for another year. Um, I think they want to win and they want to go somewhere else. So to see the players' belief in Brett Bielema has definitely been validating from, from an outside standpoint. Um, to see the way they use the tight end in the spring game. I know it was only a spring game, but Luke Ford was used a lot more um, uh, on that Monday, April night in Champaign than he was you know, ever before in Illinois' previous offense, as was every other tight end. Um, I, I think is encouraging. Seeing his planned for recruiting in state. Everyone who's come to Illinois said, we got to recruit the state. We got to do this. We got to do that. There are a couple different lines of thinkings with that in the big 10. One is, can you really win if you're only recruiting in the state of Illinois? Is there enough talent there to that? I say, first off, Illinois has had a winning season in nine years. Mm-hmm. I, we're not asking to win a national title. We are asking to take baby steps too. The high school football talent in the state of Illinois is better than Wisconsin and Iowa. And look at how it's worked out for those two programs yeah. by sticking in house. They have figured it out. I've always thought Iowa fans look at Wisconsin and think, why can't we be like that? And Illinois fans look at Iowa fans and think, why can't we be like that? And I think Brett Bielema is the guy who's going to try to bridge that gap. Bridge that gap. I mean, if you look at the best talent, if you take the best Illinois talent off the rosters of every Big Ten and Notre Dame program, you have a, a Big Ten West contender every mm-hmm. year. And I'm not saying you're going to get all those guys as a head coach at the flagship University of Illinois, but you're going to be in on 75% of those guys. And you're going to build the relationships necessary as a guy who grew up in that state and know where to go and know how to attack. They've had a great presence with not just social media, obviously, but that's the way you had to go when we were all um, under our zoom limitations of every assistant's going to have this part of the state, that part of the state. We're going to advertise that on Twitter, on social media. These are the guys you want to reach out to. They've connected with every high school coach in the state. He's built out an entire department of pretty much state only guys to come to, communicate with the high school coaches. I mean, 
Lovey Smith lived up to every worst fear that everyone had of him, which was like, he, you know, he pretty much relied on the portal and free agency. He just was not an engaging recruiter. I mean, he did not even speak at the Illinois high school coaches convention this year, which was virtual and which came in December when the Illinois high school football season was, was postponed to the spring. Like these guys needed some love and they got it from Pat Fitzgerald. They got it from Michael Oxley. They got it from a number of other coaches. They did not get it from the in-state flagship public school here. And just hearing, you know, I did a story on Pat Fitzgerald and his relationship with, with high school coaches in the area um, back in December to commemorate his 15th year there. Unsolicited, almost every one of these guys said, by the way, it's, it's crazy that we're having this conversation about Northwestern, a private yeah. school that half our kids can't get into. We're having this conversation about his coach when these kids would die to play in state, but they either can't get into Northwestern or they're not good enough to get into Northwestern. And the place they probably could play at or could get into won't even call, pick right. up the phone to look at them. I mean, Mount Carmel, you know, mm-hmm. won the state title back when they had state titles in 2019. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they saw Illinois once um, since Jordan Lynch got there three years ago. They immediately came in and flipped Kanena Odaluga, uh, their linebacker slash athlete who was going to go to Penn. I mean, th- the impact is real. Um, does that translate into wins? I think it will. Mm-hmm. I-, I do. And the fascinating part for this year is they're one of the oldest teams in the country with a new coach. Right. So... There's learning curve there, but you also have a mature football team that's probably not going to make too many mistakes and will probably be in position to maybe compete for a bowl game. And at risk of overstating things, I think you're going to learn everything you need to know about both programs in week zero when they play Nebraska because they ran Nebraska off the field yes, last year with a coaching staff that got fired. Mm-hmm. And now they got the first college football game of 2021, first one with 100% capacity with a new coaching staff. And a very, I'll call it anxiety-ridden Nebraska fan base program, state, you name it. And look, if Nebraska runs them off the table, maybe we can read that in that into a big positive for Nebraska. But if Illinois wins, or almost wins, I think the possibilities grow for what Illinois can do in year one. And I think you're already starting to look at who's going to succeed Scott Frost at Nebraska because it's going to be a pretty dire situation in Lincoln if that happens. Oh, yeah. It's it's. Incredibly fascinating game right off the bat, and and talking to Iowa people uh, about Brett, they've known Brett obviously. You know, he played here uh, as a tattoo that he that they <laughs> always tell uh, recruits that go through Illinois. Hey, did you ask Brett about his? Or I mean, Wisconsin. He that would be one of the phrases. I know, I know Phil Parker would use and other ones. Hey, did you ask Brett about his tattoo? And <laughs> and so that was always funny, you know, having the the tiger hawk on his calf. But uh, but then there's. Uh, you know, the fascinating part to me was I was really surprised with how poorly Lovey recruited. I thought Lovey would be a really good uh, guy to be able to go into Chicago to go, you know, because he's a known figure there, or you know, and be able to convince a lot of parents, look, you know, I'm going to bring, I'm going to help your kid, and and really be able to sell what you know, because he is a man of character. I will say, I thought he was mm-hmm. terrific that way, but. Um, but they were always undisciplined. They hit hard. They were very hard hitting, uh, but just unorganized. Uh, Brett, I know a lot of the coaches around here are like, okay, this guy is actually hitting, knocking doors and talking to coaches. And there won't be that they'll, you know, they'll still Iowa will still win their some of these recruiting battles. But there won't be a Sam Laporta who's in the starting tight end who is probably the next in that great line that Iowa has. Um, you know, he grew up not that far from Champaign, kind of in between St. Louis and Champaign in the middle of nowhere, Illinois. Um, 
Illinois didn't even contact him. Illinois didn't, you know, and he said it bothered him. And his head coach has said the same thing that, you know, we're really kind of surprised we didn't hear from Illinois. And next thing you know, Iowa, which is among the better programs in the country at uncovering rocks, you know, looking under every rock for, because they, they don't win a lot of four-star, five-star battles, finds a guy. Oh, by the way, he's going to start it as a true freshman at tight end at Iowa. And now as a junior is going to be one of the better ones in the country. And it, he could have been in a lion eye. And he wasn't. So I am fascinated with that. They do have so many returning guys. I mean, Jake Hansen, um, I don't think he... Another guy old enough to run for president. Exactly. You know, he's probably older than they are. You know? But uh, no, nobody forces more fumbles than he does. Uh, Brandon mm-hmm. Peters is back for his 8,000th year. Uh, just this, you know, just 3,000 of them have been in Illinois. Uh, you know, they, they have, they've had talent. I've always seen that talent. Uh, and they just never put it all together. And I think Brett is good at organizing it. Um, I don't disagree that what what I see from them is teams that they are equal with, they're going to battle to the end, and they're going to they're going to win probably half those games at least, and then they're going to take a team whether it's an Iowa, which they haven't beaten Iowa and Iowa City since I think two thousand, but um, they're going to they're going to fight and they're going to compete, and it might be a four quarter battle. Uh, the way it was even a couple years ago against Wisconsin at home or or some of those other games. I, I could see them hanging. And maybe that translates to a six, seven, maybe even an eight win team. And if you do that, you know, then then the momentum's there and Illinois becomes a formidable team. And it, it doesn't take much. I I've always thought Illinois Illinois and Missouri, when I used to work in Missouri, were like the two programs before Pinkle took over there. I'm like, what is going on here? They have states with huge populations. They're clearly the flagship institution football-wise, and yet they can't um, they can't do anything on a year-by-year basis. And um, I'm not suggesting Brett's going to do that in Illinois, but I think he's going to have that team to where you don't just mark, you know, okay, I, we, we're going to win this game, um, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be, all right. We think we could win this game, but it's gonna it's gonna take a four quarter effort, and I think that's probably speaks well to what Brett's done in his past. Yeah, just to piggyback off what you said, I think everything you said about Lovey Smith was was true. I mean, we all want to bury him because he got fired. He stabilized that place a lot. Now it was a very low bar to clear, but it was bad there. It was bad for a while. Josh Whitman, you know, pulled the plug on the interim Bill Cubitt regime right. and. As, as excruciating as that was for the people involved in the time of the year it was, I think it was necessary. And I think it was a, you know, a short-term loss for a long-term gain. I mean, Lovey made that an actual program. You know, I mean, they went to a bowl. They, they had some, they upset Wisconsin. They, they had their moments, which they were few and far between, but it was still more than could be said for the previous regime. And again, you know, he, he was a nice face on that program. He was, familiar to the area, which we thought would translate into recruits and parents' living rooms. It obviously didn't, but the man of character thing is true. I mean, you won't hear anyone say a bad word about him. When Bobby Rountree had his accident, you know, Lovey was on the first flight down to Florida and with that family bedside. Um, like, all the good things you heard about him are absolutely true, but they didn't have a single player from the state of Illinois in their 2020 recruiting class as a flagship program in Illinois. Um, they, they just... He... Because of him, they were able to put together, it, this never gets talked about, but they have a $79.2 million football facility that rivals anyone in the country. It's amazing. It's Northwestern's without Lake Michigan, which, you know, other than that, how's the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> it's really good. Like, it's really, really yeah. good. Like, they have all the bells and whistles of anyone else that Brett Bielema is going to finally take advantage of. They have, you know, people look at empty stadiums there. It's a flagship program. Like, 
Look what look at how galvanized and I saw firsthand the state. The way this place got behind that basketball program, that men's basketball program this year, when they looked like they were a legitimate national title contender, like they are passionate and they will get behind something they have a reason to get passionate about. And I think if Brett Bielema can tap into that, I think they have a chance to be a real player in the Big Ten West. Does that mean they win it? I don't know. But again, you haven't had a winning season in nine years. Start with making the bowl your baseline. And as the Big Ten West cycles through things the way they do, Maybe every third or fourth year you're winning eight or nine games and having a chance to maybe compete for a division title. I mean, I it's asking a lot, but I also think it's asking too much, and I think it's possible. I also think there's a way to win in the Big Ten West that I probably um, wasn't fully taking into account when I was looking at that job opening and thinking about who would win there. There's a reason we're talking so much about Iowa, Wisconsin, Northwestern. Mm-hmm. They play the same style of football. Every single year. And maybe there's another way to skin a cat in that division. And maybe you can have some highs the way Purdue has here and there. And I don't want to say Minnesota because Minnesota actually, I think, plays a lot. P.J. Fleck, I think everyone sees the the flash and thinks, oh, he's this great office guy. No, he's from the Jim Trestle, Greg Schiano school of, you know, let's limit our mistakes and play strong defense. I mean, Minnesota won the same way everyone else wins in that division when they were winning. Um I just think if, if you're not prioritizing defense the way Brett Bielema and so many other great big-time West coaches have, you're going to get exposed. You might have a peak here and there, but you know what? It's not working out for Nebraska, which got the campus right. higher a few years ago, and I don't know what's going to change until you fortify yourself defensively. And that was the other part with, with Brett Bielema. Some of his staff hires blew me away. To get Kevin Kane in a non-coordinator role was really impressive and showed me that this guy's different and he's building something to last. Yeah. Yeah, the the Big Ten West is clearly a line of division league or line of scrimmage league, and uh, and that's why you've seen Wisconsin, Iowa, Northwestern, Minnesota, even have success because they understand you've got to build it at the line of scrimmage uh, to win in those areas. Um, Nebraska has never been able to match that; they just can't, and that's why um, Iowa's beat them six straight, Wisconsin seven or eight straight. Uh, they got beat up by a, a Minnesota team that was without 33 yeah. players with COVID and everything last year uh, because line of scrimmage is where it's at. And once you establish that, then do whatever the heck you want to do. If you want to run zone blocking or, or you know power and pin and pull gap, um, if you want to have a quarterback who stands like a statue like Iowa usually does, or if you want to have a guy who can you know run for a thousand yards like a um, you know, shoelace <laughs> Denard Robinson in, in oh, Michigan yeah. or somebody like it. Great. Adrian Martinez. Fine. That doesn't matter to me. It's, it's all about, can you move people out of the way and can you stop them from moving you out of the way? And if you can, you're there. If you can't, um, good luck. You know, it's, it's just, it's not, and I think Brett certainly understands that as, as well as anybody, because I don't know that there's anybody who's been tutored better. Uh, yeah. you know, I mean, when he played for Hayden Fry, hall of fame coach, coached for Fry, then coach for Ferentz, who I think will be there too at some point. Coach for Bill Snyder, Hall of Famer. Coach for Barry Alvarez, Hall of Famer. Then goes, he's the head coach there. He's the head coach at Arkansas. Then, and then probably the greatest football coach of all time, <laughs> Bill Belichick. I mean, good grief. You know, the, the guy's been, uh, you know, tutored by the best. I mean, he's in the yeah. Harvard of college football. If, if Iowa and Wisconsin are the blueprints for Big Ten West success, then Illinois just got the best possible guy because yeah. he – Played and coached for Iowa and coached a long time at Wisconsin when they were at their peak. Absolutely. Well, I've kept you on way longer than I planned to. <laughs> and so uh, – I had fun. Yeah, I did too. And 
And uh, as always, we wanted to thank you, our legends and listeners, for spending some time with us and adding us to your podcasting rotation. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. For, uh, for Matt Fortuna, this is Scott Docterman, and we will see you soon.